Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, Deltons, chickens and things to episode 50 of the Muppet Trek podcast. I'm Jarman. And I'm Steve. We're here to compare, contrast and confer about our two favorite franchises. Jarman, what are those? Those are the Muppets and Star Trek. And we do one to one reviews of the Muppet Show and Star Trek, the original series. But that's changing for this episode, Steve, isn't it? For our very special 50th episode, we are going to be comparing the Muppet movie and Star Trek, the motion picture, which both somehow came out in 1979. That is just too cool, isn't it? Uh, but before we get to it, Jarman, <laughs> do we have any feedback? Yeah, we do. And oh, before we get to the feedback, I'm just going to assume, audience, that every 50 episodes, we're going to do another movie uh, review, the next in line of these uh, franchises. So stick with us through all thousand episodes that we do of this show. It's going to yeah. happen. <laughs> so for feedback, we have an email from the lovely Paul Wright from the Cosmic Pizza podcast. And it's always great hearing from our friends over at Cosmic Pizza and Temporal On the Trek. other side of the pond. Oh, yes. Love those guys. Uh, so Paul says, hi, Jarman and Steve. Just want to say how much I'm enjoying the Muppet Trek and Sappy Crap podcast. If you aren't listening to Sappy Crap, folks, listen to Sappy Crap as well. Please. Uh, Sappy Crap is amazing as it's so relatable even for a 56-year-old Brit. Your experiences in the U.S. back in the 90s are similar to my experiences in the 70s, 80s, although there are some cultural differences. Muppet Trek is amazing as it takes me back to a happier time when I was 10. I had no responsibilities and life was so much simpler. <laughs> we get that. Amen. I've been watching the Muppet episodes before listening to the podcast, which we love that, too. I love that people can do that now. Uh-huh. Um, and it's interesting to hear your points of view and trivia. I like that you don't always agree on the final score and Jarman's good episode can be Steve's bad episode. In fact, that's been the pattern more often than not. I feel like. <laughs> not always, though. Sometimes I'm like, oh, happy we agree. You know, it's cool. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, you are now moving away from watching the shows in the UK broadcast order. And he says in parentheses, the best way and makes sense. <laughs> and now are using the Disney Plus order, which I'm sure is pulled out of a hat. <laughs> he says Disney are production, production order. It is production order. <laughs> That's true. Uh, what UK is production order or Disney's production order? It's the actual production order of the show. Disney is. <laughs> oh, wow. That's yeah. funny. So here's what he says about this. That's interesting. I'll, I want to hear your take on this. He says, Disney are messing with my head as the order they have the shows in for season one have Scooter in them from the start and then introduce him halfway through the season. Is that accurate, Steve? Uh, maybe. And it, I'd so, have to really go back and think about it because we watched it in the UK release order. So yeah, which is the right order, apparently <laughs> you're the right order. Well, he says uh, you're about to find out what I mean. In season three with Miss Piggy's young fan, Annie Sue Pig. She is in one show, then is introduced a couple of shows later, which well, I guess we'll run into. That's going to happen. That sounds about right. Yeah, I think she's actually coming up maybe in this next episode or the next one or two. Oh, he's saying season three. Miss Piggy's fan shows up, but we'll see. Yeah, um, we're in season three. Oh, we are in season three. I think we're, I thought we're season Thompson two. Coolidge was the first episode. You're so yeah. right. 
Um, he was. I was watching the Chris Christopherson Rita Coolidge episode with my friend Lee. He's the guy with all the Muppet paraphernalia in his bathroom. I mm-hmm. didn't think it was as bad as you guys made it out, although Chris Christopherson's singing was not the best. I don't think the episode was bad. I think Chris Christopherson was terrible. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he says, we then watched the Gilda Radner episode. And if you guys don't rate this as the best episode to date, then there is no justice in the world. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. She's got to beat out. Pete Usanov and Zero Mostel. That's and they're, true. They're Titans. They're yep, Titans. That's true. I hope she does because she's a Titan as well. That's um, right. He says she was an amazing guest, engaging with the Muppets and willing to do anything the producers wanted. To take on the story, a modern major general is a bold or take on the song, a modern major general is a bold choice for anyone, but she took it in her stride. Uh, the glue scene, which carried on the final number, was funny in a slapstick way. Slap the head and slap your and your hand sticks to it. Um, it is so sad that we lost this genius far too early as she was the best comedian of her time and would have gone on to greater things. I totally agree with that. And I'm excited to see that episode now that he's been talking about it. Fun Steve uh, factoid. Uh, the first musical I ever saw was the Pirates of Penzance. And I actually sang Modern Major General for a class I was in. Oh, look at that. A little Steve like connection. credit at some point. A Trek Steve can or <laughs> Muppet Steve connection. <laughs> Muppet Steve. So he says to uh, close it out here. Uh, keep up the great work and carry on Muppet Trekking. Paul from the po- Cosmic Pizza podcast. Well, thank you, Paul. That was a great email. And uh, we thank you, Paul. We know you're disdain for our order of watching it. <laughs> Blame Disney. It makes Plus. it so much easier for us. It does. We have this huge spreadsheet. That, oh, man. that spells out the next like six years of our lives on this podcast. And it's made it so much easier <laughs> to is. figure out what the hell we're supposed to be watching. Absolutely. But uh, I guess I would normally hear say to tell us about the guest star, Steve, but you're going to tell us about the Muppet movie. Yeah, that's right. So the Muppet movie has a ton of cameos in it. Uh, a lot of friends of the Muppets. And I've got just a quick one liner basically about each of the cam- each of the cameos that happens. <laughs> uh, we got Dom DeLuise, season two guest, James Coburn, who's a legend of Western classics and is a season five guest. Madeline Kahn, another season two guest. This was filmed after season two. So there are a lot of season two guests. Mm. Uh, she also made appearances on Sesame Street. Telly Savalas was on the love boat. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, the what? There it is. Uh, but is most known for his his role in Kojak. Uh, Carol Kane did appearances on Sesame Street, but is most commonly known for playing Andy Kaufman's character, Latka's wife, Simka, on the TV classic Taxi. Hmm. Paul Williams, longtime friend of the Muppets and wrote most of the music for this movie with his uh, writing partner, Ken Asher. Milton Berle, season two Muppet show guest. Elliot Gould. Uh, Best known from our generation is playing Saul in the Oceans movies. He's one on a small list of folks that appeared in more than one Muppet movie, appearing as a cameo in this one and then playing a police officer in Muppets Take Manhattan. Hmm. Uh, Edgar Bergen, he died shortly after this cameo was filmed, and he is one of our least favorite Muppet show guests. <laughs> That's right. Following this immediately is Bob Hope, a season two guest and another one of our absolute least favorites. <laughs> uh, both. Piggy and Kermit appeared on his televised 75th birthday special. Happy birthday, Bob. Mm. Richard Pryor did recordings and segues for season seven, eight, nine, and 11 of Sesame Street. Uh. Steve Martin, another longtime Muppet friend and appeared in multiple Frank Oz films. Additionally, such as dirty rotten scoundrels and little shop of horrors. Mm-hmm. Mel Brooks, comedy legend and icon his a lot of his repertory actors were involved with the muppets including muppet show guest dom DeLuise, harvey corman and cloris leachman speaking of cloris leachman she also made a cameo and was a season two guest hey and then finally orson wells rounding it out friend and fan of the muppets 
he was once quoted as saying Sesame Street is the greatest thing that ever happened to television. Oh, that's wonderful. But what are they up to in the Muppet movie? Well, we open on a studio where the Muppets are gathering to watch a movie they made about how they first met, kind of. <laughs> yeah. The movie starts. Kermit's in the swamp. We hear Rainbow Connection. Dom DeLuise shows up in a rowboat and tells Kermit they're looking for big star frogs out in Hollywood. <laughs> Kermit leaves the big city, stops at the El Slizo Cafe and finds a failing comic named Fozzie. We get a great Frank Oz as a biker cameo here. That's right. They leave together to go to Hollywood. Doc Hopper, who I'm Doc Hopper, I'm Doc Hopper, uh, <laughs> uh, who owns a French fried frog leg restaurant, tries to recruit Kermit for his commercials. Kermit says no. Uh, they keep going. We get moving right along the song. They stop at a church where they meet the electric mayhem who don't look like Presbyterians to them. <laughs> we get the song. Can you picture that? While the electric mayhem disguises their car to try to hide them from Doc Hopper. Doc Hopper and Max see right through this uh, until the Kermit and Fozzie hide in front of a billboard. They then literally run into Gonzo, who agrees to join them to go to Hollywood instead of Bombay, India. <laughs> uh, they go to buy a new car uh, from Madman Moody, played by Milton Berle, who's honestly, I think, one of the best cameos in the film. Oh, he's this great. Old Milton Berle cameo. Uh, and through a weird series of events with Sweetums, they, they end up buying a car for like 10 bucks <laughs> and he owes them a nickel. They then head to the county fair where the Miss Bogan County pageant is happening. And we get our first look at Miss Piggy, who looks at Kermit in daydreams. And the song Never Before Never Again happens while she dreams about their romance and life together. Kermit accidentally invites Piggy to go with them to Hollywood. Gonzo decides to get Camilla a whole bunch of balloons from Richard Pryor and floats away. Kermit, Fozzie and Piggy and Camilla make chase in the car. Uh, they catch him. They further lose Doc Hopper and Max, who somehow get pied by a giant billboard. <laughs> they stop for the night and Kermit and Piggy decide to take in a very romantic dinner with an extremely sarcastic waiter played by Steve Martin. And this is the other really, really good cameo. In this movie. Oh, it was probably my favorite in the movie. He's so good at being. Oh, thank I'm, you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Piggy gets a call from her agent and ditches the dinner. <laughs> Kermit finds Rolf at the piano and they sing. I hope that something better comes along. Uh, Kermit then gets another call. It's Doc Hopper. I'm Doc Hopper. And he's got Piggy. <laughs> Kermit is led into a trap where Doc has employed a crazy German scientist to brainwash him into doing his commercials. Piggy breaks free, kicks the crap out of everyone and rescues Kermit. Piggy then gets another phone call actually from her agent and then ditches Kermit again. <laughs> uh, we get a cut back to the theater where the Swedish chef is messing up the film reels. And by the time we get back, they're back on the road and they've picked up Rolf to go to Hollywood. They stop to pick up a hitchhiker, and guess what? It's Miss Piggy, whose job fell through. Mm -hmm. Doc Hopper comes over the radio, revealing to Kermit that this is his last chance and that he's hired someone to basically take out Kermit. I'm Doc Hopper. <laughs> I'm Doc Hopper. <laughs> uh, the car breaks down. They camp out, and Gonzo sings, I'm going to go back there someday. This is my favorite Muppet song in any Jim Henson thing ever. Played at your wedding. Played at my wedding. Uh, Kermit wanders into the desert and has sort of an existential crisis where he argues with himself. He has moments of self-doubt, but ultimately reassures himself that the goal of singing and dancing and making people happy is always a worthwhile pursuit. He returns to the camp to find the electric mayhem there jamming out. They continue their journey to Hollywood with the electric mayhem and their bus. They get pulled over, but it's not a cop. It's Max, Doc Hopper's assistant, telling Kermit he's in danger. Kermit tells Max to tell Doc that he'll he'll see him for a showdown at the next town, which is a ghost town. 
Yeah. In the ghost town, they find Dr. Bunsen Honeydew and his assistant Beaker working in the middle of nowhere on these useful inventions. <laughs> Doc Hopper shows up with his goons. Kermit makes an impassionate speech to Doc Hopper, who still orders for him to be killed. <laughs> Just then, Animal, who's taken Dr. Bunsen Honeydew's growth pill, erupts from the building, lets out a huge roar, and scares away Doc and his minions. The gang completes their trip to Hollywood, barges past a, a big executive assistant, uh, executive's assistant, and upon seeing Kermit and his gang, he says to have a standard rich and famous contract drawn up for Kermit the Frog and company. <laughs> we then get, <laughs> I had to write this out because it's so insane. We then get a movie version. Uh, we get a version of them making the movie that we are watching and we are watching them watch. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think that means we've officially broken the broken the fifth wall. <laughs> yes. Because we are watching a movie about people watching a movie which features a section of us watching a movie of people watching a movie about how a movie we are watching them watch is made. <laughs> meta, super meta. Mm, so meta my head's going to explode. <laughs> this ends with the song uh, The Magic Store with so many muppets in frame. And ends with the lyrics, life's like a movie, write your own ending, keep believing, keep pretending. We've done just what we've set out to do, thanks to the lovers, the dreamers, and you. We get to back to the theater where the Muppets are erupting with how happy they are that, of how the movie came out. And that is what we call the Muppet movie. Yay. Jarman, what did you think of the Muppet movie now that you have more context to the show that came before it? Oh, yeah. And... Plus, the first time I watched this was for our watch through um, when we did this piecemeal for our play on nerds podcast uh, over years, I guess. Years and, ago. And so it was the first one I saw. I hadn't seen the show. Um, and so now I'm watching it again. I don't remember where it finally placed when I watched all the movies, but this is I still think either my favorite or one of my favorite Muppet movies because it just and now with the context, even more so, it fully encapsulates the feeling of the TV show. Um and then it's more just true to what that show was and the characters and the rest of the movies kind of branch off. Like you've told me in the past how they went off and told other stories like Treasure Island and all the yeah. classic stories. This was quintessentially the Muppets and the cameos mixed in with all the celebrity aspects and the Hollywood aspect. And the songs were all solid and it just felt like a really all around solid movie for me. Um yeah, I just, I just, uh, it had a lot of laugh out loud moments. I'm Doc Hopper. And I'm Doc Hopper. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I just think it's good for anybody just to jump into as well because it kind of is like an origin story of the Muppets. So if you haven't seen anything Muppets, it's still a good movie to watch on its own. So I think it's great. I don't know about you. After you have your own life experience with Muppets, what you think? I mean, of absolutely. It. Some of my favorite songs ever, um, going to go back there someday and hope that something better comes along are like two of my absolute favorites. On top of that, you've got the Academy Award nominated Rainbow Connection. Um, and, and what I really appreciate about this now, especially now that we've watched the first two seasons, and I think we're going to touch a little bit on this with Star Trek too, is that the, they were able to show a scale that we were never able to see in the show. Right. Some of the shots and the effects and them in the rowboat and just them being outside. Yeah. And I think what really encapsulates kind of amazing. that so well is that you watch this whole movie and really that ending sequence where they're showing themselves put on the movie in a, on a stage set shows you just how big that juxtaposition is because it shows this is what you're used to with the TV show. 
And this whole movie is what you're flat. Yeah. Like that is the TV show to us. And then to see this whole movie, it shows just how different it is. And they kind of like, I think they threw that in there to show you. Yeah, we know this is what you look like. Look what we just showed you. This is pretty impressive. Right. And it really is, you know, the him on a bicycle, how difficult that was. And yeah, the bicycle, um, him and piggy in the rowboat is stellar. Him and Fozzie dancing at the El Slizo cafe is stellar. It's just a lot Um, of crazy big budget things. And once again, just getting to see them outside, them driving the car is in itself like a technical feat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Gonzo flying outside, you know, that's pretty crazy. We've been in, we've been in such a box for two seasons that it feels so good to watch them completely get outside of that. They live in the real world. Yeah. Right. Um, So yeah, it was, I've, you know, I've never watched the first two seasons and then the movie before. Ah. Uh, and it's just so refreshing. Yeah. As I someone who's seen the movie dozens and dozens of times, it was really refreshing. And like you said, this movie is pretty much took place right after the second season. So we're kind of like right on par where the audience would have been in real time. Yeah. We're like one episode ahead of where the audience was. So that's pretty cool to see how we're seeing it kind of how they would have really seen it in real time, which is kind of neat. Uh, music. In the Muppet movie, uh, all of it was written by Paul Williams and his partner, Ken Asher. Uh, but I've got a few factoids here and there. Mm-hmm. Got Rainbow Connection, as I mentioned, nominated for Best Original Song. Uh, moving right along, Williams and Asher. Kenny Pack pictured that um, per, it was performed at the Outside Lands Music and Arts Fest- Festival in 2016 by Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. Huh. <laughs> Uh, I hope that something better comes along. As I mentioned, is one of my absolute favorites, just absolute favorites deep down. Uh, they made a monkey out of old King Kong. I hope that something better comes along. Great wordplay. Great song. <laughs> America, the beautiful. This is the only song that's not by Williams and Asher. Uh, this music was written by a guy named Samuel Ward, and the lyrics were uh, actually a poem written by a woman named Catherine Lee Bates. They weren't paired up the poem and the music until 1910 when the song became what it is now. And both Ward and Bates never met. Wow. That's fascinating. But they somehow collaboratively made this super patriotic song that's still part of the American zeitgeist. So you're saying Kathy Bates wrote that poem? That's absolutely right. <laughs> Catherine Bates. All right. Kathy Lee Bates. <laughs> uh, that's the only music this week because, as I said, they were all written by the same two guys. So it was a shallow pool. That's true. That's true. But great What music. did you think was the best Muppeteering moment? Uh, in the movie, I, I think after I watched it, I was like, oh, yeah, I think I brought this up when our, we recorded the uh, last review of this is that the opening sequence and, and therefore the closing sequence when they're in the screening room and it's just all them watching the movie and moving around and doing interacting was pretty amazing. So much business. Yeah, yeah. because you can compare it to the, the, seat, the last song where they're all in that big hangar on the set, uh, but they're not doing as much and they're all kind of clumped together, whereas which is already it's impressive. There's so many of them, but. It was more impressive having them in that theater doing so many things at one time and moving around and interacting. And the only thing that stood out was Sam the Eagle was just stationary and not moving. <laughs> so it was like <laughs> it was a little distracting that he was just like dead. <laughs> but he's probably a stiff puppet they could sit up. Yeah, exactly. But the rest of them were all moving. I, I purposely looked and I was like, he was the only one who's just kind of sitting there. Um, but it was, yeah, I just think that's just so impressive. That was amazing. Uh, for me, I've got to go with uh, Kermit and Fozzie dancing. Oh, yeah. That's on crazy. stage together when you get to see their feet and like full movement is just such a rare thing yeah we never see that never um so that that takes the cake anytime you get to see a lower half yeah and i will say honorable mention to uh 
the bicycle scene because I saw a behind the scenes of it and saw how difficult it was to pull off of Kermit riding a bike. We thought oh, it yeah. was it was pretty quick. It wasn't a long sequence, but that alone was just so difficult for them to do that. I'm like, wow. Oh, yeah. So it's like a marionette being operated by like three guys and then a thing at the front pulling it. And it was there was wires nightmare. above too, like holding him up. It was, just, it was yeah, ridiculous. <laughs> so you don't realize that going in, but it's great. But so far, I would say this is the best Muppet movie we've reviewed. Uh, well, yeah, because the only one we reviewed. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you're Shop, right. Oh, yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> so, Jarman, tell us about Star Trek, the motion picture. All right. So this uh, we've already reviewed this once before. I was telling Steve before the show. So for fun, I wanted to find a like fun, silly, uh, re- like summary of this film. And I'm not a good enough writer and I don't have the time to write it. So I found one online that was fantastic. It's a little not safe for work as a heads up, but it's really funny. And it's brought to you by moviehousememories.com, which apparently does pretty fun summaries of movies. So let's check it out. So Star Trek, the motion picture starts with a giant energy cloud in space, destroying everything in its path. Three Klingon birds of prey investigate. The cloud blows up two, and the third tries to retreat before they too meet the same fate. Wait, retreat? What the hell kind of Klingons are we dealing with? Kapla, indeed. Meanwhile, in Sector 001, the Enterprise is undergoing a major refit. For years of dedicated service, banging numerous Orion slave girls, Captain Kirk is now Admiral. He throws a major hissy fit so he can regain command of the Enterprise to investigate the space cloud coming straight for Earth. Captain Decker, who oversaw the refit and was to take command, gets his space panties in a bunch and doesn't take the news too well. Hey, at least he still has a relationship with Aaliyah, who is bald and took a celibacy vow. Okay, I can see why this frustrates Decker. Kirk addresses the crew in the most motivational way he can by showing the cloud destroying the Klingon ships. You can tell Kirk suppressed doing the jig when he saw the Klingons go the way of his son. Oh, wait, that doesn't happen until later in the timeline. Never mind. Anywho, Kirk says the cloud is heading straight for Earth, and they say, as per standard Starfleet protocols, they are the only ship that can intercept the cloud in time. Because if you are going to build a fleet of starships capable of not only defense, but also for destruction, you want to make sure that none of them are around to protect the home base. (laughs) Which is always true in Star Trek. Uh, The cloud interrupts the briefing when it attacks a Starfleet station, which Kirk also shows to the crew. The cloud destroys the station, which clearly upsets everyone at the loss of their comrades. And Kirk consoles his crew by saying pre-launch countdown will commence in 40 minutes. Very comforting. And they say that Spock is the emotionless one, but apparently he is. The rest of the cast, I mean crew, assembles, except for Spock, who is now a hippie. The Enterprise leaves dock and heads out into space. Kirk fires up the warp engines, which creates a wormhole that engulfs the ship. Kirk damn near kills the crew before the cloud before the cloud can. Only Decker, with clearly much more knowledge of the new Enterprise, saves the ship and Kirk's legacy. Shortly thereafter, Spock joins the crew, helps to get the engines working, and the ship speeds off at warp 7 toward the cloud. Once at the cloud's edge, the cloud attacks. The shields deflect the first assault, but can't take another hit. How cliche. Spock figures out how to communicate with the cloud. I told you in hippie, just as the cloud begins a second assault. Spock figures out how to say hi in cloud language in just the nick of time. The cloud opens up faster than Nurse Chapel's legs after a bottle of wine and the Enterprise thrusts deep inside. (laughs) The cloud assesses the Enterprise database and vaporizes Aaliyah. However, the cloud then makes a probe that looks exactly like the Aaliyah actress. 
Fortunately, the actress who plays her has a robotic acting method, so it works. V'ger programmed the Aaliyah probe to observe and report the happenings of the carbon-based units infesting Enterprise. Eventually, Spock realizes V'ger is a sentient machine that wants to meet its creator. Once at the center, Kirk, Decker, Spock, and McCoy form a landing party and realize V'ger is really Voyager 6, an Earth deep space probe from the 20th century. V'ger wants to know if there's more to life than observe and report. Decker, realizing this is his best chance to bang the bald chick, or at least a real doll version of the bald chick, rewires V'ger to uh, merge with Aaliyah, merge with the Aaliyah probe and V'ger. With the merging complete, Enterprise and Earth are safe. Kirk then goes on a joyride with the Enterprise, probably looking for more Orion slave girls. And that is what happens with Star Trek The Motion Picture in a more crass way. But uh, it gets to the gist of things pretty fast. That's true. Yeah. And see, most of that happens pretty quickly. But in between all that action, there is a lot of slow moving space shots. And we'll talk about that now, I'm sure. Because, Steve, what did you think of Star Trek The Motion Picture? So things I liked Mm -hmm. Uh, now having watched a fair chunk of the original series, I, I understand the spectacle of the movie a lot more. Mm -hmm. And I think it was very much what we touched on with the Muppet movie earlier. It just showed the scale they could do things at now, right? This tech didn't exist when we were doing the show. This budget was never something we had access to. Look at all these cool miniatures and real life light sets and crazy effects we can do but then they never got off of it. That's all they did was show the spectacle of this thing they could do. And there was no story to actually fill it. There wasn't enough story for sure. Yeah. Yeah. This felt, and I think I even said this when we reviewed it, this felt like a really good episode. This felt like a 40, 45, 50 minute episode that then they took and they were like, well, we got to make it a movie. Two hours. Let's fluff it out. <laughs> um, some things I liked the, uh, I thought V'ger was a good indirect faceless villain. Mm-hmm. It just took too long to deliver it. Um, yeah. Things maybe I didn't like as much the blurry dual focus thing. Oh yeah. They had two, two cameras like racked at the same time. So it was like Kirk in, in, in focus and this guy way in the back in focus and just blur in between was awful. It was an awful effect. That's why they in very infrequently use that in films because it's so distracting because they want to dual focus on things, but it's just like they really should just rack focus between the subject and then who's talking and then rack focus back. But it's just because it looks too distracting. I agree. Um, there was something really fun about like getting the whole gang back together mm-hmm. and him like basically conscripting McCoy back and Spock showing up, but but being extra cold and emotionless, which I didn't think was necessary. I mean, I thought it was like a fun twist or like they're ready to jump back in the bandwagon. And then he's there and he's like, Whoa, okay. He's like really cold now. And then he was already the cold one. So it's not like it was a juxtaposition. Well, I feel like the good thing was with McCoy coming back, he was right back to where he was. He was like one of the more fun characters who felt more like the original series. Like, cause even Kirk was kind of abrupt and cold in this movie at most points. Um, and McCoy felt the most the same. And then I liked that there was a journey for Spock to being like he was going to devote his life to Vulcan. And then having this experience reminded him. I, I liked his journey that he went from like, uh, well, I shouldn't just uh, go to that because this machine will never have emotion and how sad that is. And I like that he right. found that he's like, oh, I do want that in my life somewhat. Like, so he wants to stay with the Enterprise. I thought that was kind of a neat journey, but I get where you're coming from, though. 
that and then the V'ger re- reveal was really good and really like who would have seen that coming at the time yeah but at the same time it just took too long to get there yeah it should have been an episode and actually this was going to be the pilot episode of star trek phase two um this tv series they were going to make and they kind of just adapted it then for the screen and which mm. it was just very evident as you can see they had to pad it out into a two-hour movie so exactly so what you're saying is true. Big spectacles, good feels from having the cast back together, especially now that I've got a lot more context on the show. Mm-hmm. But it just wasn't enough. It just wasn't. Yeah, I think after watching the show, you're really going to like the later movies again more because you'll be like, oh, there's that feeling of the of the cast and crew again. You know, yeah. um, when we go out camping and singing row, row your boat in later movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Jordan, you got some factoids for us? I do. And I, I have quite a few. Um, so if, if you if you have questions or want to stop me throughout or, or you know, just get bored, just let me know. But I think there's a lot of fun stuff here because it was the first one back. So this one will be kind of factoid heavy because uh, a lot of hmm. stuff went into making this film. But anyways, um, William Shatner, who saw the completed film for the first time at the world premiere, was struck by the overall sluggishness of this film. Go figure. It was convinced that he was convinced the Star Trek franchise died there, there and then. And he opined, well, that's it. We gave it our best shot. It wasn't good and it will never happen again. And recalling this initial reaction 15, 15 years later, he was like, uh, show you what shows you what I know, because it did really well. Um, the Klingon language, as we might have mentioned before, was developed by this film uh, by James Dewan, Commander Scott. And they later on made syntax and rules for the language and made it into a full on language later on. And he also, James Doohan devised the Vulcan language that you hear in the movie as well during the culinary scene. So that was all thanks to James Doohan. He's good with languages and accents and that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, uh, this is all a fairly well-known thing. When Captain Kirk addresses the big crew, um, many of the extras were Star Trek fans, um, including B. Joe Trimble, who is famous among Star Trek fans because she's the one who organized a letter campaign to get us a season three of Star Trek. So they want to reward her for having that third season by having her as an extra in that scene. And the funny part was that most of the checks from the extras in that scene were not cashed. Uh, the producer found out and he says it was probably because they framed them as souvenirs because they were such big fans of the show. They didn't want to cash the checks that they got. So it's pretty funny. Uh the producers of the cast were very worried about their appearances. Uh, the producers were worried about the cast's appearances when they came back from the original series after 10 years. So special camera and lighting tricks were used to hide their aging and their their weight gains that they had had over the years. And so stupid. Yeah. And William Shatner had a near starvation diet before filming because he wanted to loosen that tummy. But he ended up wearing a corset for the movie anyways. And you can see it in some of the shots he's wearing. He's finally wearing his, you know, girdle that he's famous for. Uh, but in later films, they decided to just incorporate their aging into the story because they are aging. So they gave them better outfits. They're getting older. Yeah, exactly. But they had more loose fitting outfits or things that covered up their, their bellies and that kind of thing, which is fine. Um, the only thing that came back from the original series, the only prop was Uhura's communication earpiece. Everything else was gone, but they found that out of storage and they put that on last minute. So that's the only original piece from filming. Nice. Um, and during this whole thing, uh, Gene Roddenberry clashed with writers constantly because the big deal was that he really wanted writing credit on this movie. And 
people were like, no, you didn't write any of this script. The script is ours. And he kept trying to change, make little changes here and there enough to where he could get a writing credit. So he could justify it. Yeah, justify it. And he also would get um, extra royalties for being a writer on the film. And finally, they had to go to the Writers Guild and they ruled against him. They're like, no, you didn't write enough of this movie to be involved. <laughs> and by this time, he was doing coke and he was an alcoholic and it was he was kind of a mess. And people were trying to avoid him as much as possible. So... He kind of got blacklisted after this film and didn't really get to work on Star Trek again until the original and the next generation. And that's when he came back and he was only around a few years until he died at that point. But the whole rest of the movies, they're like, no way, you're not involved in the slightest. And a few of them were good. A few of them were. That's very true. Uh, the cast hated the uniforms, as as we know. And also there's lots of uh, jokes about these uniforms, because if you look, there's a lot of uh I think you called a moose knuckle and camel toes going around with these outfits. So that's another reason why they changed uniforms for later films. These uniforms are never seen again. This was the first uh, McDonald's movie based Happy Meal toy was from this movie. They had Star Trek meals and it was with the Star Trek toys from this movie, a tie in. And they've done a million cents. Uh, So Leonard Nimoy was famously not going to return to Star Trek uh, for this movie or anything else, because after the original series, he actually took a trip to London uh, to see a play with his wife. And it was a play with Henry Fonda. And afterwards, Henry Fonda stopped him and said, I hope you're getting a lot of money for all those ads. And Nimoy was like, what are you talking about? And apparently Heineken had done a huge ad campaign with Spock and Spock's image on their ads. And Leonard Nimoy had no idea. So he was suing and uh, going against Paramount Studios for not getting any advertising revenue from this or any kind of royalties. And so the only way he took this movie was by getting a big payout and saying that paying for all the lost income he got from those advertisements and also having final say on the script. So he had final say on the script Uh, in the end. So he had a lot of power going into it. Um, And most of the Enterprise scenes uh, on the bridge, they had to be dubbed over. So those were all dubbed basically because all the screens were projected from the back because they didn't have digital things to put digital screens in later. And the projectors were all super loud. So it was basically like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it was a roaring, constant roar. So they had to like dub over all those lines, which is I can't imagine acting that condition. Um, The woman playing V'ger was a model at the time and she had to be. Shaved actually bald for this. And that was a big deal for her at the time. But also she was temporarily blinded in the scene where she's like vaporized. Um, so she was blinded for like a week uh, from a flash blindness from the lights they used because they wanted to keep her eyes open for the scene. So that that's great. Uh, so Decker and Aaliyah uh, actually served as the basis for the characters of Riker and Troy for Next Generation. Their relationship and the fact it's Decker, Riker, and also Troy was also kind of a um, empath, which Deltons are supposed to be, like Aaliyah is supposed to be. Okay. Uh, this is the first I time. Can see it. Yeah, it's the first time we hear the Klingon music, and they use that throughout the rest of the movies and some of the other series as well, which is pretty cool. And Deltons, they don't really go into this too much in the movie, but they're supposed to be highly sexually advanced beings, uh, the Aaliyah character. Um, and that if they had sex with anyone outside of their race, they would kill them because the pleasure would be too much. <laughs> so that's why she mentioned she's taken a, her um, oath of celibacy, because if she tried to touch anyone or have sex with them, they, she'd kill them. Um, so it sounds pretty, pretty badass. And that's why a lot of them look at her strange. She walks in Ooh, a Delta and even Sulu's like, whoa. <laughs> but anyways, I didn't realize this, but Mark Leonard plays the Klingon captain in that first Klingon scene. And he's the guy who plays Spock's dad. And also the Romulan commander in Balance of Terror. So that's pretty cool. Plays a lot of stuff. 
And originally, this is a famous trivia. I couldn't go without mentioning this. The original script that Gene Roddenberry wanted to do was called The God Thing. And it was rejected by Paramount because it was too controversial where the Enterprise crew was going to meet God. And that is kind of later used and adapted for a later movie, which we'll eventually oh, yeah, talk about. Um, but many other story ideas were considered, including prevent- <laughs> preventing John F. Kennedy's assassination, uh, the crew becoming Greek Titans, and a black hole swallowing the galaxy. And none of those were used, but this was instead. Nice. And randomly, there's someone called Chief DeFalco who's called in to take over a station. That's actually William Shatner's current wife at the time, uh, Marcy Lafferty. Uh-huh. Uh, they divorced. He's been married like 10 times uh, <laughs> for the uh, the civilians. This is fun. The civilians of San Francisco that are walking around, um, they had greater freedom with their dress and their clothes. So they went into like the Paramount lot to find clothes for them. And they found these unused and forgotten silks, uh, crepes and leathers that laid in storage. And one bolt of material had been handpicked by Cecil B. DeMille in 1939 and was in perfect condition. And this red, black, and gold brocade was woven with real gold and silver wrapped around silk thread. And the costume itself was just for some ambassador walking around. And the costume cost $10,000 alone just for the fabric. And it's, to this day, the most expensive costume ever worn by a Hollywood extra. (laughs) Wowzer. It just makes you look at, like, the crazy stuff that they wore back in the... um, in the, those early days of film, they were wearing ridiculous, like opulent things for the sets and for the costumes. They had money was of no issue, apparently. Um, yeah, I, a few more here. Just a few, just a few more. <laughs> uh, according to William Shatner, the script was constantly being rewritten to the extent that the cast were getting new revisions every two hours. Uh, more often than not, the actors had no idea what was going to happen in the scene and were forced to improvise. So the fact this came together at all is pretty, pretty amazing. Um, while there had been past films spun off from various television series, this would be the first high-level, big-budget feature film adapted from a television series. So it's generally credited with being the first establishing of the trend of reviving or remaking a television series as a theatrical film. So that's pretty cool. Um, and this is part of the Gene Roddenberry craziness. The special effects guy, Douglas Trumbull, was asked if he ever worked with Gene Roddenberry while on this film. And he said, no, I had no contact with him. That was a kind of interesting backstory. I don't know if anybody knows the story, but Gene was, as was told by the studio, a very, very difficult man to get along with. And in order to progress in the movie production, even before I came on board, Paramount just arranged to put Gene on a kind of lush vacation cruise someplace. I don't know anything more about it than that. So basically, (laughs) after the film was done shooting, they just sent Gene Roddenberry on a cruise and said, just go away. Let us finish this. So he couldn't show up to the editing bay. Yeah, the editing bay creates more problems with his coke-fueled binges. I don't know. It was just just a lot. And we talked before an episode about Grace Lee Whitney, who plays Yeoman Rand, and how Mm -hmm. she went through a lot of problems with sexual harassment on the set, and an executive had harassed her. So both William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy are the ones who pushed for her to be in this film so that she could still have a career and still be working during that hard time. And 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 future films that she was in had little bit parts. They're the ones who pushed for that. So apparently they were always rooting for her and stuff, but she always had a rough life. Um, but they were really good to her. So I think that was pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, she plays like a the transporter technician. Yeah, and she they called her Rand, so she's still the same character, but it was just kind of neat that she was there. And I also like that uh, Nurse Chapel got to be a doctor. Yeah, she's an MD now, as he says in the line. <laughs> and she actually gets to practice a little bit. And the last two here. Um, 
Although V'ger turns out to be the sixth probe of the Voyager series, in reality, only two were created. Voyagers 1 and 2 were launched on September 5th, 1977 and August 20th, 1977, respectively, and are now the two most distant human-made objects from Earth. And on, in 2012, Voyager 1 became the first spacecraft to leave the solar system and enter interstellar space, which is pretty badass. It's basically becoming V'ger now by leaving the solar system. It's going to happen. And mm-hmm. the last thing, this is pretty cool. This is my favorite thing about this movie. Uh, the line spoken by Commander Spock um, when they said we should when I think Decker says again, like you said, shoot at it, shoot at it. And Spock says any show of resistance would be futile, Captain. That's very much a precursor to a repeated line used by another logically driven race, the Borg Collective, who first appears in the next generation. And this fueled fan speculation that this mission directly led to the creation of the Borg. And William Shatner would later fully realize this concept in his Star Trek novels that he wrote. Uh, featuring a Borg-resurrected James T. Kirk, along with uh, Spock, Picard, and the Next Generation crew, they discover uh, modern Borg were born from the merger of Captain Decker, Lieutenant Aaliyah, and V'ger, as depicted in this film. And although it's not considered canon, it is an enjoyable resolution to a question that had remained previously unanswered. It would imply that the planet where Voyager 6 arrived after crossing a black hole to land on the planet, and where a race of living machines turned Voyager 6 into V'ger, would be the Borg homeworld which I thought was badass. Yeah, Roddenberry did try to confirm this, but now hearing that he didn't actually write the script, I'm not sure we can trust that man. That's true. <laughs> he tried to write the script a billion times, but they didn't let him. So sorry for all those factoids, folks, but I thought it was a lot of fun. I picked out of a lot of uh, garbage that was in there, but that was one of the best ones. And it's just a lot of cool stuff about this. The making of this movie is somewhat cooler than the actual movie itself, I think. But there you go. So do we have any Trek connections or Muppet connections this time around, Steve? Oh, boy. Well, we had a lot of people that were guests on season one and two of The Muppet Show, which we reviewed and I've already done Trek connections for. So I concentrated on ones that I hadn't done yet. Okay. Uh, James Coburn. He was actually on the original shortlist of consideration to play Captain Pike in the original pilot. Oh, I hadn't remembered that. That's great. Elliot Gould. He was featured in a now classic SNL sketch. Uh, of called the last voyage in which the enterprise is being chased by a car. And then it turns out it's NBC's lawyer telling star Trek they're canceled. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, Richard Pryor started the movie Brewster's millions, which also, which also featured admitted pedophile, Stephen Collins oh. who played captain Decker in the movie. That's right. I forgot about that. Orson Welles famously provided the voiceover for the teaser trailer for star Trek, the motion picture. Mm hmm. Telly Savalas, he picked a gentleman by the name of Burton Armis, who was a detective at the, to- at the time, to be his technical advisor on the show Kojak, while Burton went on to write the teleplays for two The Next Generation episodes, A Matter of Honor and The Outrageous Okana. Oh, cool. Okona? Okona. Okona, yeah. And he's coming back, or he did come back for another for an animated Star Trek as well. Different animated Star Trek. And- and then Sally Stevens, and this is the one real, real direct connection, is uh, was a contract singer who did vocals for multiple Star Trek productions, including Star Trek's movies 1, 2, 3, and 4, The Next Generation, and Star Trek Beyond. Well, she was also a contract singer and worked on the Muppet movie. Oh. I have another Star Trek so connection, direct- by the way. Ooh, hit it, hit it. Oh, wait, never mind. It's just a Trek connection to a Trek connection, so it doesn't work. You piece of shit. <laughs> because basically the woman who stars opposite Kirk in uh, The Voyage Home she starred with uh, Collins, the guy who plays Decker in Seven, Seven. Heaven. Yeah, so there we go. <laughs> Jarman, were there any similarities between these two films? 
You know, there were a few and we've already got two of mine, which pisses me off, is that both films <laughs> came out in 1979. They did. I, I've been a little lazy with my similarities this time around. Orson Welles, both appearing in the Muppet movie as the executive and also narrated the trailer for the motion picture. The motion picture. Oh, Orson Welles, frozen peas. Um, <laughs> in both films, uh, the characters spend the whole film on a journey for something. Uh, to figure out what V'ger is and travel to its center in Star Trek and to make it to Hollywood in the Muppet movie. Yeah. Similarly, both feature traveling from one place to another set to music. Oh, lots of music. Yes. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but both feature effects and scope that their TV show counterpart parts couldn't have pulled off. That's a very good one. That's good. Uh, both feature a story of how the gang gets together. Ah, uh, yes. That's a very blatant one right there in your face. The same uh, movie. And then, and then my final one. Both feature someone's love interest showing up and then piecing out randomly and then randomly showing back up again. Oh, my gosh. With Aaliyah <laughs> just popping in and out <laughs> with Decker and then Piggy leaving and then coming back and then leaving again. You are absolutely right. That is a great one. <laughs> They're the same movie. They are the same movie. <laughs> Oh gosh, <gasps> what is that? Transporter malfunction. Transporter Alright, here's the part of the show where we'll transport one character from one movie to the other movie and vice versa. So what you got for us, Steve? Yeah, so this week, Muppets to Trek, I've got replacing V'ger with the musical rotating rain barrel. <laughs> what? Because what a hilarious letdown that would be. <laughs> Wait, what is the musical rotating rain barrel? So when they go to the um, when they go to the ghost town, all there's like a barrel, and then all of a sudden it like a thing pops up and starts spinning and playing music. Oh, I totally forgot about that. And like, oh, that's my musical rotating rain barrel. Oh, that's so I just right. think it would be so funny if they got after 25 <laughs> minutes of like flying through space past all these things, they get to major and it's just that thing. Exactly. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, I had that animal should trade places with Aaliyah. Now, hear me out. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm be with you. Because his scenes with Decker would be hilarious. <laughs> I miss you from my planet. <laughs> and, then, ah. and then later when v he becomes V'ger's probe, I could just hear him yelling, V'ger want to find creator now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Fair. Fair. Yeah. I'd watch that. That'd be great. Uh, Trek to Muppets. Uh, I've got just bringing everyone over to replace everyone. <laughs> you get Kirk in there for Kermit. You get McCoy in place of Fozzie. You get Chekhov in place of Gonzo. You got Dr. Chapel in place of Piggy. And you got Spock in place of Sam the Eagle. Just everyone. <laughs> just bring everyone over. Now function the whole thing. Let's see what happens. <laughs> uh, I had, because I, I just, from our, if you listen to our Play on Nerds episode, we reviewed this before. We love Doc Hopper. Uh, we can't get enough. We do. I especially can't get enough. And so I want Spock to trade places with Doc Hopper. <laughs> <laughs> so he's relentlessly chasing down Kermit because it is only logical that he become the spokesfrog for his Vulcan Frog Legs establishment. I'm a sweet man, but I'm not a performer. <laughs> I'm Doc Hopper. <laughs> this is who I am. I must create your frog legs into a beautiful dish. <laughs> oh my I would God. also watch that. Yes, it would be fantastic. And I think... That might bring us to the end of the wonderful episode 50 milestone of the Muppet Trek podcast. 
Join us next time when we're back to our normal shtick with Muppet Show special guest, Leo Sayer. And original series episode, Patterns of Force. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. I'm Doc Hopper. I'm Doc Hopper.